0: What I'm your host Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England Podcast. Episode 40, Jutes and Franks, The Beginnings of Kent. Kent consists of a small spur sticking out from the southeastern tip of England. To its north lies the mouth of the River Thames, and to its south lies the English Channel. As the closest point between Britain and mainland Europe, Kent has always been an entry point into the British Isles. This means that it has often been the hub of international trade and communication, but it also means that it is one of the most vulnerable parts of England to invasion. The first invaders to land at Kent were, of course, the Romans. Specifically, Julius Caesar landed a force there in 55 BCE. Following the rebuff of Caesar's forces, the Romans invaded again in 40 CE under the orders of the Emperor Claudius. Although the exact location of the Claudian invasion is debated, the general consensus is that it also landed in Kent. The Romans named the kiwitas that they established in the region Cantium, after the local British tribe, the Cantiaki. As the capital of this region, they established the town of Durovernum Cantiacorum, the settlement that would later become Canterbury. In the 4th century. The Romans were themselves confronted by the region's strategic vulnerability as seaborne Saxon raiders began to harry the eastern coasts of Britain. In response, it was ordered that a series of coastal forts be built on either side of the English Channel, as well as up the eastern coast of England, as a means to fortify against the invaders. These forts were collectively referred to as the Saxon shore. Four of these forts were built in Kent. To man them, the Romans enlisted barbarian mercenaries, probably of Germanic background, to form groups of what were called Fodorati. These Fodorati would have mingled with the local Romano-British population and added their culture to the mix that the Romans brought to Britain. If you'll recall from the very first episode, The Romans left Britain around 410 to deal with disorder in the imperial heartlands, forcing the Britons to fend for themselves. They did, however, probably leave many of the Fodorati behind. This wasn't enough, though, to cause the shift in Kent into a Germanic kingdom. That shift occurred later, with the coming of the Saxons. Kent has the most well-documented origin myth of any of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, thanks in large part to Bede. The story of Hengest and Horsa, which I discussed in the episode on the Adventus Saxonum, given by Bede, was explicitly the foundation myth of Kent. From Hengest, Bede says, came Oish, from whom, apparently, the kings of Kent, the Oishingas, took their name. The story of Hengest and Horsa is, without a doubt, mythic, so we must look to other sources, particularly archaeology and place names, to help us identify who occupied Kent and when. When discussing the coming of the English to Britain, B tells us that Kent and the Isle of Wight, as well as a section along the southern coast of Hampshire, were settled by Jutes, of whom Hengist and Horsa were the leaders. There is much debate over exactly where the Jutes came from, but archaeological evidence suggests that they originated in Jutland, the main peninsula of what is today Denmark. The discovery of cruciform brooches and golden bracteates of Danish origin in Jutish graves affirmed the cultural links between these two regions. Linguistically, the Jutes may also have shaped the Kentish dialect of Old English. While all dialects of Old English were mutually intelligible, some differences in spelling between them suggest that they were pronounced differently. Kentish, it seems, was closer than other dialects of Old English to the Frisian language. If you'll recall from the Boniface episode, Old English generally was very closely related to Frisian, but the pronunciations of Kentish suggest that it was particularly close. This poses an interesting question for historians of language, though. The Jutes were the most northern of all the migrants to Britain, coming from what is today Denmark. Thus, their language raises questions about the relationship between West Germanic languages – so English, German, Dutch, etc – and North Germanic languages such as Danish, Norwegian, Swedish and Icelandic. Of course, Danish is descended from Old Norse, but the Jutes, if Kentish is representative of the language they spoke, seem to have spoken a language related to that of the Angles, Saxons and Frisians. Just to clarify, Old Norse doesn't exist in the archaeological record prior to the 8th century, when it began to appear on Scandinavian runestones. Prior to that, the people of Norway and Sweden and parts of Jutland, spoke what scholars call Proto-Norse, and this language was much closer in relation to Proto-English than Old Norse was to Old English. To demonstrate how close, I want to highlight a very recent discovery that you may have heard about. In Denmark, archaeologists recently discovered a golden bracteate from the 400s CE, which seems to bear the oldest instance of the name Odin in Proto-Norse. The form of the name on that bracteate is Wothnaz. If you recall from the episode on Anglo-Saxon paganism, then you'll remember that the name of the Anglo-Saxon god comparable to Odin was Woden. It's just a small example, but it highlights how closely related were Proto-Norse and Proto-English. Thus, it seems likely that communities speaking the two languages coexisted on Jutland in the Migration Age, and that along with other speakers of Proto-English, the Jutes migrated to Britain, leaving their kin on Jutland to eventually adopt Old Norse. The size of the migration to Kent is, as everywhere else, controversial. The wealth of Jutish artefacts found in the region suggests a migration of rich settlers, both men and women, since one of the main archaeological indicators of the arrival of the English is the appearance of Germanic dress decorations in graves. The question is though, was it just an elite migration? A recent genetic study of the English indicates that the migration of the Saxons to Britain was large enough to leave a mark in our DNA a fact which supports the idea of a migration by more than just the elites of Northern Europe. With them also came farmers and people who settled close to the land, and who presumably intermixed and interbred with the Romano-British natives. As a result of this, the legacy of the Romano-Britons remained strong enough for the Latin name of the region, Cantium, to survive and be adopted into Old English. This may have more to do with the survival of power structures than the dominance of the Britons in the region, though. There is some archaeological evidence to support this. It has been noted that the patterns of rural settlement in early Germanic Kent mirror closely those of Romano-British Kent, suggesting that the settlers were settling down within the rural communities of Britons, rather than creating their own. Urban life came to an end, certainly, as it did everywhere else in Britain, with the main settlement of Canterbury being completely abandoned, until it was reoccupied at the very end of the 6th century, when King Athelbert gave it to the monks of the Augustinian Mission. But the kingdom that emerged from the rural settlements seems to have been a fusion of Romano-British and Jutish origin. Hello listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider you're using to listen to this, when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel, and when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, add free episodes and transcripts, as well as the ability to request topics for future episodes. And speaking of patrons, I want to give a shout-out to Harry Clark, who recently became a patron. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you're enjoying the extra material you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. It's a bit misleading, though, to say that the Jutes alone settled all of Kent. As we see all over England, the cultural makeup and boundaries of the Jutes were extremely fluid, And in fact, the Jutes only seem to have really settled in eastern Kent. The west of Kent seems to have been settled by East Saxons, the people who gave their name to the Kingdom of Essex. In addition to this, the strong connections between the people of eastern Kent and Jutland survived into the 6th century, but these were soon eclipsed by the ascendancy of Frankish material culture in Kent. This coincided with the ascendancy of the Merovingians in Francia, and some written evidence exists suggesting that the Frankish kings held some form of overlordship in parts of Britain. Based on the archaeological evidence, it is sometimes suggested that this area of overlordship was Kent. This state of affairs certainly benefited the Kentishmen, though, as the evidence of burials with grave goods from the 6th century makes clear that they not only had access to a great deal of imported goods, but also that their elites were among the wealthiest in all of Britain. This was apparently limited to the eastern part of the kingdom though, since the more Saxon-western parts offer up much less archaeological material, and what they provide is markedly poorer than what we see in the east. In fact, throughout Kent's time as an independent kingdom, it was regularly divided between two kings, one overking in the east and a sub-king in the west suggesting that this early cultural division developed into a real political one. We can summarise this evidence as such. Kent, in the sub-Roman period, was culturally and politically diverse. Far from being one united kingdom, it had significant internal differences, which made it effectively two kingdoms. By the time that we get into the period of recorded history, the Kingdom of Kent included the western Saxon half of the peninsula, suggesting that at some point in the 6th century, the Jutish Kingdom annexed the Saxon one. Although the legacy of the Saxon Kingdom survived as a political division, it no longer had any real independence. It's also been suggested, although it is not certain, that the rulers of Kent exerted some control over the Isle of Wight and southern Hampshire. This is based on Bede's account of Hengist and Horsa, including the Jutish settlement of those areas in the wake of the settlement of Kent, which, some suggest, was a mythological explanation for cultural and political links between Kent and those regions. The first Kentish king who seems to have actually existed was Eormenric, father of King Athelbert. Before him, the line of the Kentish kings is extremely confused. Tradition says that Hengist was the first, but the name of his son is debated. Some sources say his son was Oesc, who fathered Octa, father of Aormenric, but others say that his son was Octa and that Oesc was his grandson and thus the father of Aormenric. For what it's worth, the earliest sources such as Bede affirm that Oish was Hengist's son and Octa was his grandson. This Octa then, according to Bede, was Aormenric's father. Aorman Rick ruled in the late 6th century, and beside his name recorded in Kentish genealogies, we really don't know very much about him at all. Bede tells us that he died in 560, but this can't be accurate, since we know that he brokered a marriage between his son Athelbert and Bertha, the daughter of King Charibert of Paris, yet another instance of Kentish-Frankish ties. And Bertha, we know, wasn't born until 565. Gregory of Tours, writing in the late 580s or early 590s, implies that Athelbert's father was still king in Kent at the time of writing, so possibly he lived very late into the 6th century. One interesting note is that his name is very Frankish. Its first element is Aorman, which is hardly ever used in Old English names, yet it is very common in Frankish ones. We should perhaps then consider the possibility that Eormenric was not actually a descendant of Hengist, or was at least distantly descended from Hengist. He may have actually been Frankish in origin and installed as a puppet king under the Franks. That is pure speculation on my part. We don't have anywhere near enough evidence to really prove that either way. But it seems interesting that his name, is so unusual within the context of Anglo-Saxon history. But that's all we really know about E.ormanric, and as you can see, this is all very speculative. As I touched on in the Augustinian mission episode, though, his son is much better known than he is, and this is in large part due to his embrace of Christianity and the resulting influx of literacy into Kent. I will consider his life and the impact of Athelbert in much more depth next time. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I've been your host, Tom Kearns. I hope you'll join me again next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week, wherever you get your podcasts.